the free for all roundtable brought to you by lexus avon canada's newest lexus dealer near canada's wonderland in the maple auto mall luxury is closer than you think round one on round one sabrina nanji is here with queen's park observer and like i say dowson is a radio commentator and pundit john burnside is your toronto city councillor and at the risk of making it all about you john i wanted to take advantage of the fact we had a conversation just a few minutes ago about vision zero and uh, he wasn't excoriating the city because things are getting better. We're, we are bringing down the number of cyclists and pedestrians who are being killed. But he says we kind of got to get a little bit more serious. But I mean, we have to think about reconfiguring intersections and changing the lights and stuff like that. I mean, is that on your radar? Uh, well, it was the first term. Um, once again, you may never talk to me again, John, but I was the one that got <laughs> counseled to ask the province to uh, allow us to use automated speed enforcement. Okay, we're always getting into right? me. And the- <laughs> right? Uh, you and your tickets. Oh, well, I love those stories at four in the morning. The mayor called me and said, I'm not going to fix it, you know. (laughs) So, I mean, Vision Zero is education, engineering, and enforcement. The engineering takes time. The education can be immediate. The problem is we don't have the enforcement tools. So, uh, you know, police in the last 10 years have the number of tickets they've issued is down 90%. Um, you know, uh, we can't use technology for anything other than speeding and red light. So there's there's a big gap there. It's an ongoing effort, absolutely, with the engineering. But given the cost, it's a very slow process. I've been spending some time in Montreal. And like I say, Dowson, and uh, one thing that stands out is, first of all, the downtown's been reconfigured. So <laughs> there's no point in bringing a car. Uh, but also, the light signals are calibrated very carefully to keep p- pedestrians, cyclists, and cars away from each other. Yeah, no, there's been a big effort because there's been a number of terrible deaths at intersections and cyclists, too, have been uh, sideswiped and killed. There's a number of those white bikes around town, the uh, yep. the shadow bikes for the, the cyclists who've been killed. So, yeah, there's been a big effort. And you're right. There's no point in driving in downtown Montreal, especially this past weekend, because it was gay pride and Metallica and closed streets and construction. So everybody just gets on the metro or on buses that are booked ahead of time, and that's it. It's it's like a no-brainer now. It's kind of taken for granted. If you want to go to see the Owls play, you don't take your car. You get on the bus and on the metro. So, yeah, I think it can be done, and I think maybe Toronto needs to focus a bit more on that because we know everybody went out and got a car during the pandemic. So there's way too much traffic, and somehow we have to con- you know encourage people to use transit, improve transit, and get people out of their cars as much as possible. And Sabrina Nanji, an interesting point that the professor made was we tend to obsess over the downtown, maybe because a lot of us live there and most of us work there. But this is really a suburban story an awful lot of the time because the streets are wide and the cars move fast and people get in trouble. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that there could be a lot more done to the councillor's point. And I think Montreal is a model. I mean, that that would be the ideal if we have folks coming from the suburbs down to the city that they would be taking transit um, and that obviously the transit situation wouldn't be the, the mess that it is also now. And so I think, you know, when I look to cities like Montreal, I think that's the goal for Toronto. Okay, so let's talk about the cost of housing. And I think we can merge these two stories and then you guys can run with it. Sabrina, I'll start with you. We've got a Waterloo region mayor who makes $90,000 and says she can't afford to buy a house in her town, the town that she is mayor of. Then you have Habitat for Humanity established 
establishing that the threshold in Toronto for household income that will qualify you, anything under this will qualify you for a house from Habitat for Humanity, which is a charity, $100,000. And think for a second, that's the threshold for the sunshine list. So we think of that as spoiled. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you mentioned the sunshine list because that's what I thought of immediately with with this story too. I mean, that's the public disclosures we get, which is basically the size of like a phone book now because we know that more and more people are getting paid at least $100,000. Like there's a lot of teachers on it, a lot of cops on it, um, just because of inflation, like that's just where wages are right now. And so I, I think that this is something I, I wouldn't have expected from Habitat for Humanity, but I'm not surprised. I mean, obviously we know $100,000 doesn't really get you much. It doesn't go a long way in Toronto, especially when it comes for housing. Um, and for this, you know, Waterloo Region mayor, I think one thing that's notable to me here is a little fun fact for you guys, which is that Natasha Salonen, the mayor, was up until last fall a staffer to a Ford government minister, the Minister of Agriculture. And I just, um, it, I guess it's significant to me that this story is just happening to come out at a time when, you know, the Auditor General has just put out a bombshell green greenbelt report and the PCs are sort of spinning this narrative about the cost of housing housing in response. So I think that's just something to keep in mind in this story. But that said, I mean, I buy what she's saying that, you know, making $90,000 a year is not really enough. Well, she's going to appear on the show at 820. And I was already intending on asking her about that. It's an excellent point. It's kind of, you know, a sad case study that bolsters the current government's need to build. Uh, and like I say, Dowson, your thoughts? So I look at this, first of all, this mayor is 28 years old. She just graduated from Oxford. So I I mean, I don't know. When I was 28, I wasn't really in a position to buy a place. I was a, I was a tenant, and she's living at her parents' place. So I, you know, there's right. mitigating. Although when I was 28, here. I was making twelve thousand dollars a year. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I'm not trying to say there isn't a problem with housing. There is definitely a problem with housing right across the country. Um, so what's happened is the feds have walked away from old programs having to do with backstopping mortgages and helping to set up nonprofit. Uh, and cooperative housing. That was a big thing in the 90s, and they don't do that anymore. So they need to go back to that, and people need to also think about maybe living in flats, right? Like triplexes, quadruplexes, like we have here in Montreal, where people either rent or live in or own, uh, you know, a flat, like a, a largish flat in a piled up kind of housing situation. Like the idea that you're going to own a, a house with a yard and two garages and a picket fence, maybe we need to be, you know, walking that back a bit. And I also think it goes to the, the issue of decline of the decline of unions and collective bargaining and stagnation of wages because people are falling behind in the inflation crisis and they can't make enough money to stay ahead. I mean, if you have like two, three kids and two working parents, four kids, you're you're in really deep trouble. You're not going to be able to move into the city. And that's really bad. That is a real bad development, which some politicians are making hay with. Politicians who shall remain nameless until later in the panel, I guess. Uh, John Burnside, <laughs> a lot of people would say all of this is an argument for the urgency of what the government, the Ford administration, is pitching. We need to build and, you know, scrap the rules. Uh, well, I actually disagree. I think there's a little bit of a false narrative going on. And so, first of all, in terms of the sunshine list, when that came out, I think in 95, that $100,000 in today's dollars is 200000 So, you know, we need to we need to move that needle. Um, second, 
Finally, yeah. to Anne's point, um, I, you know, society's changing. We're becoming a lot, our, where there's a lot more density in and around the GTA, and I think we need to change our expectations. 1997, I believe I was a, well, I know I was a cop then, making about 50,000. Um, that uh, equates to about 95,000 now. At no point did I ever think on $50,000 I could own a house. Now, yes, it was in Toronto, but I never thought, oh, I'll move to Wilmot and buy a house. So uh, I think the expectations need to change. And I think everyone agrees that in this day and age, it's just the reality. You need a double income. 90000 isn't going to do it. Um, let me ask you about this crystal meth profile in the Toronto Star. And again, I'll start with you because you're the city councillor. But this is harrowing. But it also, for me, a lot of pieces as I read it, uh, a lot of my experiences over the last few months in the downtown fell into place where I thought... You know, as she describes the agitation, the shouting, the uh, unpredictability, the physical attacks on people. This is not somebody on heroin or fentanyl. This is somebody on crystal meth. Well, yeah, and as you know, I worked in the encampments for about a year and a half. And whenever I'd go in with with uh, staff members, we'd we'd identify who was doing what drug. And so, crystal meth uh, was one of the major drugs uh, being used. And, and there's a lot of experimentation, a lot of cross use. Um, so, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, at some point we have to get a handle on, on, on this drug use and also whose rights supersede whose rights. And, you know, if I'm on the TTC, I think I have a right to safety. If I'm walking down downtown, um, I don't know what the solution is, but this idea that it's, that, um, um, that we have to always uh, acquiesce to, quote-unquote, the victims. I think that's a, a larger discussion that needs to be had. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, uh, you know, I'll turn to you on Legacy Dowson in just a second, but I want to read a tweet. I'm not sure if this was sent to you as part of the package this morning. Diane Chan McNally writes, Meth is a smart way to stay awake and avoid assault or theft on the street or in a shelter. There's a lot more to it. I don't know if she's necessarily advocating uh, for the use of meth so much as pointing out the necessity Necessities some people may feel. Uh, and like I say, Dowson, I suspect addiction is the bigger issue here. No, no, addiction is definitely the issue. And I'm a big proponent of harm reduction. I take the point about it being scary and upsetting and potentially very dangerous for people when you're tangling with somebody who's freaking out on crystal meth. So those people have to be contained, they have to be talked down, they have to be brought indoors by people who actually understand the psychology of drug use, because I think a lot of homeless people, people with psychiatric problems, they're very fearful because they are the, the ones who are most at risk of eventual robbery and attack, right? So trying to stay awake, trying to stay vigilant, but, you know, starting to freak is also really not good. So I, you know, people who are addicted, they, you know, you've got to go to where they are. They are not, you can't operate on a punitive kind of model it just doesn't work people run away and they and they can't be corralled and helped in any way so you're going to have to figure that out you have to provide shelters that work for people with serious addiction issues on this according to what works for them not according to some you know model of like you know jails or prisons or you know detention right. that doesn't work right Okay. We know it doesn't work. But Sabrina, I thought that this provincial administration was making a priority of rehab, and maybe I'm missing the evidence of that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, to, to what's already been said, there, this is something that we can see visibly on the streets. Um, and obviously, you know, there's not enough that's being done here. I mean, obviously, you know, we've talked about opioids for years and that being an increasing problem. But I think that this one feels definitely, you know, just anecdotally, just being out on the streets feels a lot more dangerous. And clearly, like not enough is happening. Um, we're kind of at a racetrack, so maybe I should be asking you for your word this week, uh, Mr. Well, Burnside. John Burnside you. has made a habit of bringing a word every week, and in addition to that, apparently banana bread? Uh, but, uh, chocolate chip banana bread. Oh. Okay. My mom's recipe. Now I got it. And did you cook this? Of course. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, my girlfriend's the luckiest person in the world. She won't admit it, um, <laughs> but uh, that's, that's for another uh, day. Uh, Palter. And I thought we we're going to talk more about the green belt, and I missed my opportunity. But um, the question is whether the government is paltering, which is to act insincerely or deceitfully. Okay. I was, huh. uh, I'm trying to remember if I've used this one anymore, but I love the poetry of it. Verisimilitude. Oh, and I love that word. I Resemblance to truth. That is a good one. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. I got really competition. All right. This is getting yeah. a little didactic. Thank you all. My thanks to John Burnside and, like I say, Dowson and Sabrina Nanji. Catch the roundtable. Round one at 745. Round two at 845. Weekday mornings on More in the Morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.